Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. I want to open up this evening, tonight, by reading the first three verses from Revelation chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, please. It says, After this, I, that's John speaking, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the land, on the sea, or on any tree. I saw another angel coming up from the east with a seal from the living God, and he shouted to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Chapter 6 that we finished up last week deals with the opening or the breaking of the first six seals of the scroll that ushers in the Great Tribulation. Chapter 8 is the breaking of the seventh seal, which ushers in the seven shofar judgments. So chapter 7 in between here that we're starting on tonight is like an interlude, if you will, between the information of the sixth seal and the information of the seventh seal. This is a kind of an interlude where we are given a look at some of the other things that are going on at the time that these seals have been being broken. If this were a stage or a TV drama, it would be like a scene shift so that those watching would be aware of other things that are going on within the plot. This will be done again between the sixth and the seventh shofar judgments. It'll be the same pattern. It'll be the same pattern, and that's where the seven thunders are introduced, but sealed up. Interesting when we get there. Interludes of this nature occur across the book of the Revelation and provide us with all kinds of useful information to understand what is being prophesied. New concepts are inserted in these. Historical data is given. Parallel events are shown. All sorts of useful information. I'll try to pinpoint these uh, in each case where they come up. Anyhow, the first thing to happen in this interlude, for instance will be to introduce the 144,000, which is in verse number 4 that we stopped just short of reading in our opening um, verses. There are a number of theories about how the book of Revelation is set up. Some think that it's laid out in pretty much chronological order. Others think that it isn't necessarily that chronological. I personally subscribe to the chronological or uh, theory. The non-chronological theory allows too much room to manipulate, if you will. You can manipulate interpretations if, if you're not going to make this be chronological. So in doing this, I bucked this tide a little. But I think that the order of the book is pretty much chronological. With these interludes, like this chapter we're looking at right now, placed ever so often. Which can occasion move outside of the chronology to give us details, but which help us understand why things are happening and what's going on at this particular time in the tribulation? God is not going out of his way to make this difficult for us. We shouldn't either. 
these opening words in this passage um, in verse 7-1 say, after this. They actually mark the beginning of each of two sections within this chapter. After this actually introduces what would be called an aside in a play, sort of a vision within a vision, if you will. These two words come under wide interpretation, and we'll probably look at that a little more later on. But let's keep it simple. When the sixth seal is broken at the end of chapter 6, the people being talked about were all non-believers. All non-believers when the sixth seal was broken at the end of chapter 6. Here in chapter 7, we're going to go into... And we're going to see how two groups of people are in this that are believers, that are believers. We've seen the wrath and the reaction of the non-believers trying to hide in caves behind rocks. Now we're going to take an aside from the wrath and its effect on non-believers in the world and look at what's going on with the believers. And this is a huge contrast, as, as we will see. When we get to chapter 8 the wrath will begin again. But we stop here for a moment and look at what's going on with believers, how God's dealing with his chosen ones, if you will. And this starts with these four angels standing at the four corners of the world. This has nothing to do with geography lesson or the shape of the earth. It's talking about these angels being involved in the entire earth. They're at the four corners of the earth. They're involved with the whole earth. The concept... The concept of four is a concept of totality. No part of the earth is exempt from the involvement of these angels. All of the earth is under their control to some extent. And they are holding back the four winds of the earth. No wind should blow across the land, on the sea, or on any tree. There's a certain amount of controversy as to whether there is actually wind meant here in, in this passage, whether or not this is actual wind or not, whatever it is, it certainly is the agent that is to execute judgment for God. Wind certainly can be a destructive force. Living in this climate, we're familiar with hurricanes. In the southwest and the midwest of the country, there are gigantic tornadoes that are going on. Some are happening right now, in fact. The fact that these winds are described as being held back here indicates that they probably would be destructive in nature. Whatever this term wind is describing, it's a powerful force. Now, it's common to use such expressions as on the land or on the sea to indicate a universal or worldwide nature as to what's going on. What's interesting to us here is the inclusion of any tree. This could possibly be to indicate living things, all living things, which would suffer the greatest if these winds that are being held back were turned loose. These winds are no doubt speaking to the destruction that goes on with the breaking of the sixth seal, but we have an interlude described here from that destructive force. These angels, these four angels, are holding back these four winds. These four angels are perhaps the ones who are charged with bringing forth the four winds, but they're holding them back for the moment before they unleash them, or 
Could these four winds be demonic forces which these four angels are holding back for a few minutes before they are unleashed? Let's look at Luke chapter 21, verse 25, please. It says, There will appear signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On earth, nations will be in anxiety and bewilderment at the sound and the surge of the sea. This is in Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. We've already seen signs in the sun, moon, and stars in the sixth seal, but notice the sound and the surge of the sea. We know from living in this area that if the sea surges and becomes violent, it's from the wind, again, such as a hurricane. Sometimes even what we call a nor'wester in the wintertime will get to be very strong. Earthquakes could also cause a tsunami or a tidal wave, but generally we think of the wind as the great storm factor in stirring up the seas. This passage in Luke 21:25 may be pointing to what we're looking at in Revelation 7:1. In the sixth seal, in addition to convulsions of earthquakes, other elements of nature might be put to work in bringing this wrath onto the earth. All right, let's go to Revelation chapter 7, or back to Revelation 7, and just two verses 2 and 3, please. Revelation 2, I saw another angel coming up from the east with a seal from the living God, and he shouted to the four angels who had given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Another angel is introduced into the scene, a fifth angel who is coming from the east, and that's a significant statement. Why coming from the east? Why not just say another angel appeared? Some say that the fact the angel is coming from the east indicates a blessing. But let's look at a couple of references on the east that have been used in Scripture. Begin with Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, Then Adonai, God, formed a person, Hebrew, Adam, from the dust of the ground, the Hebrew, Adamah, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so that he became a living being. Adonai God planted a garden toward the east. There's east again. Adonai God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he put the person that he had formed. East is where the Garden of Eden is. This is where God walked with man in the cool of the evening. Now then, let's look in Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 4. After this, he brought me to the gate facing east. There I saw the glory of the God of Israel approaching from the east. His voice was like the sound of rushing water, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision seemed like the vision I had seen when I came to destroy the city. Also, the visions were like the vision I had seen by the Kavar River, and I fell on my face. Adonai's glory entered the house through the gate facing east. Beginning at Ezekiel chapter 40, we just read a passage from verse chapter 43. Beginning at Ezekiel chapter 40, we're talking about a new temple being in place here. A temple that's yet in our future. This is a millennial temple that's being indicated. And Yeshua will put his foot down on the Mount of Olives, cleaving it in half, and enter the temple from there. 
The Mount of Olives is east of the temple location. Um, how about Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? It says, After Yeshua was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, in the land of Yehuda, Judah, during the time of Herod, the time that Herod was king, Magi came from the east, there's that east again, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. This angel coming from the east in Revelation 7-2 is significant. There's so much going on that comes at us from the east. From the east. This angel coming from the east in Revelation 7-2 is significant. We don't have a reference point for east that we can walk up to, but as far as major activities that revolve around God, the east bears a significance. The east bears a significance. A place where divine manifestation comes from. Now this angel has in his possession the seal of the living God. The seal symbolizes various things that we really should consider. The seal symbolizes possession and security. In Roman times, it was a mark placed on slaves or soldiers indicating they were owned or in the service of a master or perhaps the emperor himself. There was another seal also available that would be used in marking membership in a guild or the mark of a religious member or as a sacred militia member. A common custom at that time, sometimes prophets of various religions wore seals on their foreheads, and these would be either tattooed or incised, which means carved in with a knife. A phylactery in later times would be worn on the forehead or on the hand. Even today, this is used as an Orthodox Jewish practice. And it is the form of a seal. If you see Jews with this thing on their foreheads, that's in the form of a seal that they are wearing. The high priest in the temple wore a turban that had a holy unto God inscribed on it on the front of it. And then there is circumcision, which is a marker or seal to identify the people of God that was introduced to Abram by God himself. Now, this gives you some little bit of an idea about how a seal would be used that this angel had in his possession. In this case, the seal would seem to indicate that those sealed are approved by God in the sense that they belong to him. They have a political legitimacy in a spiritual sense. All right, now let's look at Romans 8, 18, and 19. This is Paul speaking. I don't think the sufferings we're going through now are even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us in the future. The creation waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. So, is this the thought in Revelation 7-3? Are these the sons of God to be revealed? And we're looking ahead a little bit to... That verse 4 that we haven't read yet, which is talking about the 144,000s who are the ones who are going to be sealed. 144,000 people are going to be sealed. This also lets us 
take a look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. It says, For we are not struggling against human beings, but against rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm. These that are being sealed are to secure these servants of God against attacks of demonic power that will be coming into open manifestation at the end of the age. It's very interesting that at this particular time during the events brought about by the breaking of the sixth seal of the scroll, this is the time that these servants of God are sealed to him, these 144,000. And it's believed that his, he seals them against attacks. It's believed that this seals them against attacks by demonic forces that are coming into open manifestation at this time. His, this seals them against attacks by demonic forces that are coming into open manifestation at this time. What's happening now in the beginning of this final struggle for mastery of the world is that demonic forces are going to be released. God's hand is going to be lifted up and they're going to be given a free shot. In the past, the demonic powers had mainly been restricted to attacks on man's spiritual being. Therefore, these attacks were mostly hidden, invisible, except to the person involved, had this air of mystery about them. This coming time is going to be different. This is the end time, and these demonic powers will come forth into the open. This is going to be open warfare with God and his creation, which includes mankind for possession of the earth and for possession of mankind as well. In times past, the faithful, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, could cope with the rage and the hostility of man compelled by demonic forces. We live in that age right now. There are people out there being compelled by demonic forces. And we somehow manage to cope with the hostility of these people that are being compelled by these demonic forces. We, living in this age now, have a certain amount of order so we can cope. But look at the spate of child kidnappings and murders recently. Look at the school shootings that have taken place. There was another one that has just taken place. That's the rage and hostility of man compelled by demonic forces. But we've some kind of a lid on these sort of thing right now. The times coming, though, are going to be different. The false messiah is going to become, in a sense, incarnate and appear armed with mighty power. And that, of course, will be a false image, but that's how he will appear. Go to Revelation 12:17, please. The dragon, who is a front, the dragon was infuriated over the woman and went off to fight the rest of her children. The dragon here, that term, is a front for the adversary himself. That's a front for Satan. You could substitute Satan in there. Satan was infuriated over the woman and went off to fight the rest of her children. Those who obey God's commands and bear witness to Yeshua. There's a war in heaven and the dragon is hurled down to the earth. Then the dragon, it says, stood on the seashore. And we have the advent of the false messiah take place while he's standing on the seashore. 
So it could be at this time, things as we know them now are going to be different. That's why the 144,000 will be sealed at this point by God. Satan's going to be running loose with his false messiah running loose. 144,000 will be sealed at this point. They are God's possession, and he puts them under his protection. All the hidden secrets of wickedness, the secret sources of all the haunting power and crimes and failures, sins of the past, are about to reveal themselves. These powers will be in open combat. The faithful, the faithful, that's essence, the faithful dare not engage these vast demonic forces about to be unleashed on the earth head on. The faithful dare not engage these vast demonic forces about to be unleashed on the earth head on. That is why these 144,000 are sealed by God for their protection. On the very eve of this, of Satan being thrown down, the false Messiah being revealed, God seals his servants on the forehead to show all that these are his own particular possession and no embodiment or disembodied spirit of the evil one can harm them. The angel having this seal has rank uh, or the authority over these first four angels because he calls out to them in this loud voice, gives them orders. Let's go to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 12, so bear with us as we go through all this. It says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until after the apostasy has come. And the man who separates himself from Torah has been revealed. That's talking about the false Messiah. The one destined for doom. Next. He will oppose himself to everything that people call a god or make an object of worship. He will put himself above all them so that he will sit in the temple of God and proclaim that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is restraining, so that he may be revealed in his own time. For already this separating from Torah is at work secretly. Now this is, this is being written by Paul way back when, but it's already beginning to manifest itself. Already this separating from Torah is at work secretly, but it will be secretly only until he who is restraining it is out of the way. Then the one who embodies separation from Torah will be revealed, the one whom the Lord Yeshua will slay with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the glory of his coming. When this man who avoids Torah comes, the adversary will give him the power to work all kinds of false miracles, signs and wonders. He will enable him to deceive in all kinds of wicked ways those who are headed for destruction because they will not receive the love of the truth that could have saved them. This is why God is causing them to go astray so that they will believe the lie. The result will be that all who have not believed the truth, but have taken their pleasure in wickedness, will be condemned. Quite a passage. 
This might give us uh, some insight into this particular time on earth that's coming. It might be that the 144,000 are sealed when they are because it's on the eve of what's being laid out for us here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. The angel with the authority commands the other four angels to keep holding back the four winds until God's servants are sealed on their foreheads. The word for servants here is literally slaves. It's literally slaves, stressing the utter devotion that these 144 have to God. They are willing to put themselves into slavery under him, complete loss of any personal freedoms that they might have to serve him. There are those who hold that this passage is not limited to just the 144,000, but is speaking to all of God's elect. And I will tell you that I don't think I can support that at this time. Scripture actually doesn't say that, and wishful thinking really gains us nothing. But a lot of people, a lot of people walking around out there, they're going to talk to you, hold to the idea that this is speaking to everyone that's a believer in God, in Yeshua, and the 144,000 are just symbolic. We'll get into that in some detail later on because this tends to involve itself to some degree in replacement theology, which we'll also look at. Now, this restraint of destructive forces shouldn't be noted just in passing. The holding back, the holding back until the sealing clearly reveals that everything done on earth Every moment of time is to serve the revealing purpose of God for mankind. Now, all the forces around us, both supernatural and physical, cannot operate as they wish. They will only operate to serve the well-being of God's elect as our Lord Yeshua sees fit. Romans 8.28, please. Furthermore, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called in accordance with His purpose. All the forces around us, both supernatural and physical, cannot operate as they wish. They will only operate to serve the well-being of God's elect, as God tells us. Now, before we actually get into the discussion of the 144,000, after someone decides on a position, I want to show you how it can color the approach that that one takes to interpreting Scripture. If you make up your mind about some detail, it is going to have an effect on the way that you look at everything else. Once a theological position is taken, it necessarily alters how one interprets Scripture. I'm going to repeat that. Once a theological position is taken, it necessarily alters how one interprets Scripture. Just a review of a couple of positions that we've already looked at, and I'm harping on this to drive home uh, the point. There are the ones who are pre-tribulation rapture exponents, and there are the ones who are pre-wrath exponents. Pre-tribbers believe that prior to the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, all believers are completely removed from the earth. The earth is wiped clean of them. 
once that position is taken, then what you have to do is explain everything according to that position. So if pre-tribbers are believing that all believers have been completely removed from the earth, the earth is wiped clean, then they have to explain everything according to that position. Looking at the verses that we're going to go into, here's how a pre-tribber explains them. This particular vision regards the 144,000. The sealing of the 144,000 is something that occurs throughout the entire first half of the tribulation, not merely just after the sixth seal. Now, I'm telling you a false theology that's being held by somebody that's taken on this position that everybody has been taken out, the pre-tribbers. In fact, it is during the seal judgments and is by means by which the fifth seal saints come to Messiah. I'm going to go back over this to try and clear it up. The sealing of the 144,000 is something that occurs throughout the entire first half of the tribulation, not merely after the sixth seal judgment. In fact, it is going on during the seal judgments and is the means by which the fifth seal saints come to Messiah. This concludes with this ministry of the 144,000 Jews preaching the gospel fulfills the prophecy of Matthew 24:14. The result of their ministry can be seen in Revelation 7:9. And just so we know, Matthew 24:14 says, "And this good news about the kingdom will be announced throughout the whole world as a witness to the Gentiles. It is then that the end will come." Now, on the absence of the tribe of Dan from the 144,000, which we're going to look at when we get into that verse 4, pre-tribbers say the text does not state a reason why the tribe of Dan's left out. Text is silent, so it's best for the commentator to be silent as well. That's good advice, but the text is silent as to when exactly the 144,000 are also sealed. But we're not bothering to be silent about that. Except to place the information following the breaking of the sixth seal, the text is silent as to when the 144,000 are sealed, and there's no mention anywhere as to the, there being 144,000 evangelists. Now, you understand that there's going to be an awful lot of people during this time frame that are going to find the Lord. Yet here they're saying that everybody who would be witnessing to them is being taken out. That's the theory that's being held in this. In fact, the only mention of the activities of 144,000, they're saying, is in Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Let's pop that up for a minute. Then I looked, and there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of rushing waters and like the sound of pealing thunder, and the sound I heard was also like that of harpists 
playing the harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living beings and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been ransomed from the world. Hold that thought as we move forward. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been ransomed from among humanity as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. On their lips no lie was found. They are without defect. Isn't that pretty fantastic? This is the only mention of the activities of the 144,000. And they are as follows. They are all with the Lamb on Mount Zion, Temple Mount. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were all singing a new song before the throne, before the four living beings, and before the twenty-four elders, which no one else could learn. That hardly sounds like evangelism to me. They were ransomed from among humanity as first fruits from God and the Lamb. In fact, in fact, if we look at verse 6, following the description of the activities of the 144,000, we find out who is actually is that fulfills the prophecy of Matthew 24:14. Or Revelation 14:6, please. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with everlasting good news to proclaim to those living on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Hmm. So who is it that's making this proclamation? It's an angel of God that's making the proclamation that's claimed in Matthew 24.14. Back in Revelation 7, chapter 7, here are these multitudes from every nation, tribe, people, and language. What do you do with these people showing up here at the sixth seal if the believers were all taken out before tribulation begins? Question. What do you do with these people showing up here at the sixth seal if the believers were all taken out before the tribulation begins? See, a new way to deal with them has to be found. A new way to deal with them has to be found. Some pre-tribbers think that since they follow immediately after the 144,000 in the text, then there must be some cause and effect in play here, that the 144,000 are the cause of all these people being here, even though the text doesn't say this anywhere. The problem with locking oneself into a doctrine is that everything must be interpreted in the light of that doctrine. For the pre-tribbers... Not only must all of this group be brought to Messiah by the 144,000, so must all of the fifth seal martyrs. They have to do this to make their theological position correct. The pre-tribbers have to take it this path to make their theological position work because they're socked in by their theological position. So, I'm not telling you there won't be a pre-trib rapture. I'm frankly all for it. I'd like to be out of here myself. I just have not ever been convinced through these theological proofs that there is 
a pre-trib rapture, that it is in effect a fact. As we get further into this study, much more information and much more complexity is going to enter into the equation. So we can't start interpreting what's God's saying to make it conform to our theological preconception. We just can't do that at this point. If our stance is rigid, it will determine how we interpret these scriptures to keep our stance in place. If the believers are all gone, who ministers to the newbies that are coming in? Well, according to the pre-trivers, it must be the 144,000, except Scripture doesn't speak to that. We have to look at what Scripture speaks to. Now, I hope it hasn't been too confusing, but that's a little what the pre-trivers think. What about pre-rathers? Pre-rathers, the wrath of God happens just before he turns Yeshua loose, wipes out everybody, and Yeshua comes back, leading this army of angels to cleanse and cleanse the earth. The pre-rathers are pretty much of the same concept of the body of Messiah being removed early except they have it removed not at the beginning of the tribulation, but at the beginning of the wrath, which comes near the end of the tribulation, but prior to the return of Messiah. Pre-wrath, the pre-wrath concept is that it happens near the end of the seven years, just before Adonai's wrath sets in, but with a different approach to scripture interpretation. They direct attention to two major groups of believers, in the tribulation period. And those are both found in this chapter 7. The first is the 144,000. And then they say that later on in chapter 17, Revelation 17, there's a great multitude of martyred dead in heaven who have died as a testimony to their faith. By the use of the martyred in this case, though, they're twisting theology. It is a twisting by theology. In my opinion, nowhere in the considerable description of this group, Revelation 7, 9 through 17, is it ever said that they're martyred. Bear with me as I'm going to really going into a measure that we won't study until next week. So just use this as preparation for next week. In the previous chapter, chapter 6, a group of martyrs was seen. Their martyrdom is shown, is shown with the opening of the fifth seal at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Now, the pre-wrath position is they feel that the fifth seal is opened right at the three-and-a-half-year period, and that's what begins the Great Tribulation. Until this point, there's been tribulation, but this begins the Great Tribulation. And they quote Revelation 6, 9, which reads, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them who were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, their position, the pre-rathers, is the great multitude in chapter 7 is clearly a different group than the one that's described in chapter 6. And in the contrasting, 
add an additional truth, an additional truth that is significant, and they give these following reasons for it, really. This group that comes along in chapter 7 are so numerous that no man could ever number them. This is in marked and direct contrast to the immediate previous group, which is said to be 144,000. Therefore, this has to be a tremendously large number. Further, the great multitude in chapter 7 is international in scope, representing all nations, kindreds, peoples, and tongues. Those mentioned in the fifth seal are clearly said to be mortars. Now, keep in mind that we're looking at theological interpretation here. This new group is seen after opening the sixth seal of a necessity opening a short time later. If they're also mortars, then one must postulate that a universal multitude of such great magnitude came that they cannot be martyred, but they were saved and they became witnesses, for that's what a martyr does. A martyr does, they were slain and now are being seen before the throne of God. And this just doesn't make sense when you try to have them slain, but they're not slain, but they're martyrs of God and, and so forth. And they say this is possibly all in a very brief period of time, possibly only months really during that sixth seal. But remember, this is a vision after the sixth seal is open. Even if the truth of this is stretched to allow the timing for such things to occur, there's never a hint in the Bible of evangelistic success during the Great Tribulation according to these pre-wrath people. Now, I'm going to blow holes in that statement all over the place. There's never a hint in the Bible of evangelistic success during the Great Tribulation according to pre-wrath people. According to pre-tribulation rapturism, the church is gone. The 144,000, though, have just been sealed. Well, they're sealed to God. Are they not part of the body of Messiah, currently there and existing and walking around with him the whole time? There's no indication that the two witnesses have been successful. We'll get to the two witnesses in chapter 11, but let me tell you why would God call them the two witnesses if they weren't successful? Okay. Number two, second reason. The martyrs in Revelation 6 are souls under the altar asking God to avenge their blood. The great multitude in Revelation 7, in contrast, are before the throne proclaiming in a loud voice victory to our God who sits on the throne. Number three, in Revelation 6, the multitude is said to be souls under the altar. In Revelation 7, the multitude is said to be standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hand. They're having trouble separating these two groups, if you will. Pre-wrath people interpret this as the former group are souls, the latter group are living bodies. In Revelation 6, John immediately recognizes the martyrs who were slain for the word of God and for the testimony they held. In Revelation 7, though, it is clear that John doesn't recognize them, doesn't know who this multitude is. The question directly posed to John is, who are these? John gives a response, sir, you know, 
which is an admission that he doesn't recognize them. All right. All right. The purpose of this exercise has been to show us two different approaches to dealing with Revelation chapter 7. What happens if we lock ourselves into a particular doctrine? Then we must of necessity interpret from the point of view of that doctrine. We're going to look seriously at chapter 7 next week. We're really going to take it apart. But what we want to look at as much as possible is doing this from a completely neutral position. Not from a pre-tribber's position, not from a pre-rather's position, but strictly a neutral position. We want to approach chapter 7 and the rest of the book of the Revelation as completely neutral. And frankly, frankly, we need to be willing to adjust, if necessary, our position as we go through this. We need to do this rather than see if we can make what God is telling us fit our position, which is what the pre-tribbers and the pre-rathers are trying to do. They're trying to make the scripture written here conform with their positions. That's why we're going to look at it as neutrally as we can. We need to take the position that we don't know who is right among the commentators. When we read a commentator, we need to take the position we're not going to accept what he's saying until we investigate it ourselves and fully understand what is being said here. Then we can make some kind of a judgment. So many people have never studied this out and are following along behind these people who are pre-tribulationists and pre-rathers, and there are others out there as well. So we don't try to nudge what's being said in the Word to conform with the position. We're going to remain neutral. Let's just see what the Word of God says. The sixth seal has been opened. The sixth seal deals with unbelievers. There are two distinct groups of God's people being dealt with in chapter 7 that we're going to look at. And these are believers. When we get to chapter 8, when the seventh seal will be opened, what a diversity of thought is being made because we're going to go back to the unbelievers. And again, what a diversity of thought has come out of this area, this chapter 7. We'll stop here and finish chapter 7 next time, but I want us prepared to look at God's Word without bringing preconceptions into it. Those preconceptions could also bring distortion into it and make it difficult. And so we'll close with that. It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the Word on Solace Radio.